Hello and welcome to The Point of Everything. My name is Ono Sullivan and today on the show it's a live recording of an interview I did on Crosstown Drift on the bus tour which pulled up to Omani's of Watergrass Hill on the north side of Cork a couple of weeks ago as part of the Cork Midsummer Festival and there was two two places where there was a reading with Kevin Barry and Sinead Gleeson and then in another part of Omani's which is a really really great pub really cool venue highly recommend both for the vibes and for the delicious delicious food as well that we had in a separate place then both outside I chatted to Emily Pine and Ian Mullaney two great writers you might have listened to my chat earlier this year on the TPOE podcast with Ian Mullaney and uh, it was great to talk with Emily Pine as well I don't think that we me and Ian kind of repeated ourselves I think that there's plenty of new stuff in there as well but I thought that this chat would be um nice to post up on uh, the podcast feed the audio just about stands up <laughs> there's uh, some birds chirping in the background there's some people walking on the gravel there's a teeny tiny bit of feedback in the monitors but I think overall it's worth it for the actual content just because Ian and Emily are so smart and uh, just so great with everything that they say. Emily's book Notes to Self and Ian's book Minor Monuments were both published by Tramp Press. Emily's is just being published in the UK. It's going to be published all around the world. She mentions that a little bit towards the end. Um, Penguin have the UK rights now to that. But uh, yeah, just so you know, Crosstown Drift, it's kind of like the literary, one of the literary strands of the Cork Midsummer Festival. And uh, I kind of work kind of a little bit, uh, help booking booking some of the writers there. So it was a really good day on the 22nd of June. Uh, we started out with a free walking tour um, that went from Bobo's Cafe uh, in the Glucksman Gallery to Neighbour Food uh, in the Apple Market on Barrack Street to Nanonagel Place where the latest issue of the Sting Fly, the summer issue of the Sting Fly was uh, kind of launched. It had its cork launch there and then it was the Magical Mystery Bus Tour of which Emily and Ian featured alongside the aforementioned Kevin Barry and Sinead Gleeson and later on Danny Denton and Conal Creedon as well with your host Rue Jude Coffee on the bus. And then later on in the night, it was a really, really good night at the Crawford Art Gallery, where a load of writers, pretty much all of the writers, read uh, in various spaces. And I did another interview there, which may or may not be on the Vagas feed sooner rather than later, depending on uh, what happens over the next couple of weeks. Um, so yeah, that's everything that you need to know. I started off this chat just by introducing them, lavishing praise on Emily and Ian and so that's kind of how it starts off. You're going to hear my voice first and then I'll throw it over to Emily. So thanks a lot for listening. Thanks to everybody who was involved in Cork Midsummer Festival and uh, all of the writers who came down to Cork and hopefully everybody had a really good day. Were you expecting it to kind of uh, gather as much as it did? Like it seemed to really gather steam in the second half of last year and just it seems like a bit of a publishing phenomenon. <laughs> I know. Sorry, I find that really odd. Uh, it's like an out-of-body experience when somebody describes your work and you're sitting here going, yeah, yeah. Um, it, it's a weird thing. When I was 
writing the book and uh, I kept saying, and we're both published by the same publishers, which is amazing. And, and I kept saying to Lisa and Sarah, no one, no one is going to buy this book. Like no one. And, uh, and uh, they kept saying, you, you do the writing and we'll do the publishing. And, uh, and then I would say to my friends, oh, I'm writing a non-academic book. And they said, oh, what's it? What is it? And I said, it's a collection of essays. And they went, ugh. <laughs> <laughs> Right, and then they said all the supportive things you're meant to say, you know, to your friend who's publishing a book. And, uh, and then, the, you know, about a month before the book came out, I kind of got nervous and asked Tramp if we could publish it really quietly so that nobody would notice. Um, and they said no. And, uh, and then when it came out, like 400 people bought it the first week. And I thought, well, that's everybody, right? <laughs> Everyone I know or I'm related to or have ever met has now got it. And, and, and it'll sell like, you know, zero the following week. And it just kept going. And, and, I, and I was really surprised by it. And I think that, um, and, you know, you've just heard Sinead read from her amazing collection, Constellations, and there's Ian's collection and, um, you know, Kevin Brannock's collection. And there's suddenly this moment now where we're talking about non-fiction collections of essays. And it is not unique to Ireland, but it is a very particular, I think, cultural moment in Ireland where we suddenly have space for very no-nonsense, straightforward talking about issues. I mean, we have, we have different kind of topics that we talk about. I talk a lot about women's bodies. I talk a lot about hospitals and health and um, all the fun stuff uh, and uh, kind, of kind of the body politics around that. Um, and so we have our kind of different areas, but I think that it is a moment for it. And that's not restricted to Ireland. It's really international. I was talking to someone in America and she was saying that um, she assumed when Trump, oh, sorry, Trump, when Trump even, <laughs> mental slip, if only Trump were elected as president, I would, I would fully endorse that. She assumed that when Trump was elected, there would be a boom in fiction, right? Escapist fiction in America would suddenly become um, completely dominant. And she said it's been the opposite. What they've seen in the US is a huge boom in nonfiction writing and a hell of a lot of that is being written by women. So actually what is being created is a kind of backlash to this neoliberal ideology um, and, and, it, and a lot of it is through women. And, and it's interesting because earlier this year Jan Carson said the, the wonder is not that women are suddenly being read and listened to. The wonder is that it took that long. Um, and, and so I think it comes in waves as well because one of the other things I, th I always think as well is that um, life writing is an incredibly powerful genre for telling it how it is right and for revealing and getting rid of the bullshit um, and talking about things as they really are and i think and i'm sure lots of people here remember and read it too i i think of reading are you somebody by nula Fuelon and thinking oh yeah here is someone who's actually writing about what it's like to be a woman and in a, you know in sexual relationships and in families and in dysfunctional situations and uh, and so it's just you know, every so often you have to come along and, and dispel the bullshit. And, and coming back to um, the kind of reticence that you were feeling about um, publishing the book at the start, like, was it just the content that you were worried about? Like, how can I put myself out there like that? Or is it um, that you were just like, no one's going to read it? Oh, no, I would have been happy if no one <laughs> um, Well, not really. Your secret inner desire to be read. Um, it was the content. It absolutely was the content. I wrote about lots of things in the book that I had never told anybody. I wrote about 
Uh, I mean, things that seem really small, like loneliness but, and depression, but we still don't admit to, and are really hard to say out loud, to things that are really large, like miscarriage and stillbirth and the pain around that and around sexual violence, and that are also really, really hard to say out loud. And so the fear around revealing that was partly the fear that we all have about exposing ourselves, um, but also then the fear that I would be judged. I was really afraid that people would look at me differently and uh, would treat me differently and, and essentially would think less of me. And I've been so, I was so wrong. Like I was so wrong. And people have been so kind and so generous. And so many people have now told me their stories, you know, have said, oh, this happened to me. And will share what ha their experience and how they connected with the book. And what I have totally realized is that we don't, like, that reading is, is one of our main ways of connecting and our, one of our main ways of, of understanding ourselves and our own stories. Um, and that's been, that's been phenomenal. So I'm so glad that Trump published it really noisily. <laughs> and what about you, Ian? Were you similarly hesitant about, oh, that's a bit of feedback, um, about publishing the book, like actually putting your life and your family life on display? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, <coughs> less so for myself. I wasn't worried about me being on display that much. I mean, that's, it's, it's different when you're just, when you're putting your family on display, I think that's more, when you're putting other people on display, that, that's more of a worry to me. Like, I can take responsibility for the way that I present myself, but then also having to take responsibility for the way that I present others and what they've gone through and what they've, I'm not exactly saying what they've thought, but at the same time, I'm telling their story in a certain way and I have to take responsibility for that. And I think that was, that was the only real hesitation in it. It was like, how much of this can I tell how much of this is necessary in order to tell the, the bigger story that's kind of part of the book. Um, and particularly when you're dealing with people who are in, in vulnerable situations, um, the book is largely about my granddad and in the last, say, five or six years of his life when he was living with Alzheimer's disease. So, you know, you're observing someone in a very vulnerable situation and, and you have to be very careful how you tread with with those kinds of stories. And, you, and particularly for people you you love and you live you have lived with for your entire life you kind of have to hope that they'll let you hang around <laughs> after you've published their story basically and i mean it does kind of like your grandfather and his kind of journey through this disease does kind of run through minor monuments but like it is also the other things that you uh go through as well all the other themes that you touch on throughout some of the essays i mean what was the actual impetus to start it and when did you actually know that you had a collection on your hands rather than just like this is just one essay that i just needed to get off my chest um i think i never really thought about it as just one essay um I had been working more in, in music um, for a number of years, making all different kinds of music and, and uh, gradually recording stuff around where I grew up in, in Offaly. And it was through that, through that act of listening, I suppose, re repetitive listening to not very much, because it's the middle of nowhere and not much is actually going on. Um, listening to that particular quiet and feeling compelled to listen to it and then just naturally thinking about it um, 
I was making a lot of like ambient music and very atmospheric stuff and installation-y kind of stuff. And I got a little bit frustrated with not being able to convey what I felt was important or compelling about the place or the people or the history that I was thinking about, but not able necessarily to put into the work directly. There are other better musicians who probably could put it into the work directly, but I can't. And it was through that process of, of wanting to just say things a bit more straightforward, or, or at least in a way that more accurately reflected my own thoughts, the shape of those thoughts. Um, and so it, particularly around the time of my granddad's death, that's kind of when it sort of was like, okay, either you do this or you drop it. You know what I mean? Like the, the story as such has ended. Um, now is the time to either think about it enough to figure out what I think and figure out what the shape of those thoughts are and, and, and put them down in words or move on and do something else. And, uh, and I was lucky in that I had been sort of putting bits and pieces together and um, the first essay that's in the book appeared in, in Winter Papers, edited by Kevin, who's down there somewhere, and Olivia. And um, that was really, that was the impetus in a way for the book. And that was when it became real in a way that that was when there was actually something solid that felt like this was leading on to more stuff. So it was about two or three years of, of working on it. But yeah, it kind of came together very gradually. And, and Emily, you kind of started a journal sort of thing, just charting a little bit of like what you were going through at a certain time. And that turned into, I think, the first essay of the collection. Like, was that it? Was it just a personal thing that you were doing, like just charting stuff that you were going through on your own? And like you put it into a, a drawer in a desk and you were like, that's it, that's, that's me done. Like, you're, like you weren't supposed to write a book sort of thing almost. Yeah, but so I'm an academic, right? And I've spent 20 years training to write in a very particular way, which doesn't use the word I, which is impersonal, which is objective, which is meant to be analytic and intellectual in some way that I was always striving to be. And as a result, I couldn't ever write about myself. So when I did write about it, my dad, and it's interesting, I think that you and I both started writing about somebody else's health crisis. My dad had been an alcoholic all my life and went into liver failure in 2013. And just, and the plot spoiler is he's still alive and he's fine. Because <laughs> sometimes I forget to say that bit. And people are sitting looking really stricken and I'm like, why do they look so upset? And he's grand and uh, sober and hasn't had a drink since, and uh, uh, which I never thought I would see. Um, and, and, and I couldn't have imagined in February 2013 when we were in this mad dash to get to intensive care and we thought he was going to die like several times. And, and, and the, just the, the, the madness of that, that time period where we were in hospital for so long and he was in and out of intensive care and on the liver transplant list and, and all the rest. And after it, even after it had calmed down, that level of roller coaster emotion doesn't go away, and I just had to write it down to get it out of my head. I find writing I hate that word cathartic, but it does it just physically stopped it from whirling around and I did as you say you you, you did your research i did uh, I did put it in a desk drawer and thought that I was done with that um, and then my and then my partner kind of talked me into doing something with it and so I sometimes say that I ended up writing the book, writing the whole collection of essays, almost accidentally. 
because I sent the essay about my dad to Tramp Press and they commissioned the book off the back of it. And I had not imagined, I had not allowed myself to imagine something as as grandiose as a book, you know, because I was still putting the personal experience in this little box and saying oh, it's personal and it's not important. And Tramp did this incredible thing where they gave me permission. And then it shifted and it stopped being accidental and it became really deliberate. And it became, for me, this way of writing about the things that I felt that I couldn't say out loud before that. Uh, and a very kind of deliberate breaking of taboos and silences, and which I found which I found very, very difficult, um, but also very liberating. And and did you kind of treat the writing Ian as in a similar way, just kind of like working through what you were going through, like with your family? Yeah, a little bit. I think it's a, it's slightly different because I don't find writing to be cathartic at all. Um, quite do you, what do you find it to be? <laughs> Work. Uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, slow and, and painful and, and uh, narcissistic. Um, but it does eventually, if it's good, um, like clarity is the word I keep coming back to because it's not, not necessarily that I feel better having written something or having thought the thing that I'm trying to think. Because um, it takes me forever to think anything. Uh, I'm the kind of person you don't ask for, like, where should we eat tonight? Like, I can't really do it. Um, so I'll, I'll tell you in like a year when I've written a 4,000-word essay about it. Um, but that's the way that I, I just have to deal with things. I, like, they take a long time to become anything solid or um, clear. And so definitely writing can lead to a certain level of clarity when it's done, I think, and that, that's the great reward of it, but it's not cathartic in that I don't feel better for having done it. <laughs> it's funny though, like, because I'm nodding wildly as you're saying that about clarity, thinking, yeah, that is exactly it. But I also think, in a weird way, that's kind of the danger of it as well, because there's something about writing down an experience that you fix it, you fix it in time, and you don't, in your life, you're not fixed, you keep changing, you keep living, families keep changing, and yet you have written about that situation in a very particular way, and that then becomes the story. And so, yeah, sorry, I stole your role there. No, no, that's fine. <laughs> I'm, I'm happy just uh, just being here. Um, but, uh, like, that that's actually quite interesting, like, that maybe there isn't, like, a final full stop on some of your stories. Like, is that something that you've actually found over the past year, that a couple of the essays in your book actually they should come with like to be continued at the end of them almost like that the experience has changed and continued yeah I think so and that's one of the reasons why I really didn't want to write something called a memoir where I wrote it as a collection of essays I like the idea of the essay being that each one looks at something there's one about me and my dad there's one about the years that I spent trying to um, have children and uh, then and you know so they kind of they're thematic and as a result they're finite in a way but it's not, a memoir has this kind of progressive narrative to it. It has a beginning, middle and end. And I never, I just, I don't, I'm not at the end. <laughs> um, and, and then, the, you know, there's this other thing where, you, you know, you, you look at it and you, and you think, I've changed and I'm different. And, and, but also the world has changed and the world is different. And one of the amazing things um, when, when we published it in July last year was that I had written about um, how the Eighth Amendment had affected me personally. And, 
and that it was out of date. And it was kind of extraordinary to be publishing it. And it was, all, you know, it was already out of date. It was really amazing. Um, and, and I thought, actually, and Sinead and I have talked about this as well, and she said it in relation to her daughter, you know, they inherit a different world. And that it's fantastic, actually, when uh, they're, you know, younger women reading it. It will become a historic document to them, that, that narrative. And I think that's really... That was, you know, you never, your publisher never wants to hear you say, oh, the book is already out of date before it's been published. They never, except in this case. <laughs> and, like, just since it has been about a year since it um, came out, like, are, are you happy with everything that's in it? Is there anything that you're like, I can't believe I put that in there? Like, I can't believe that. Yeah. No, um, I, I'm not, I, I don't regret anything. And uh, partly that's because, um, I, uh, <laughs> so I spent, it took me about a year and a bit to write it, which is way too fast and way too intense. Um, but it actually only took me about nine months to write the first draft. And then between myself and my partner, Ronan, um, and uh, who's, in a, who's a writer himself, um, we edited the shit out of it and, uh, and, and caught a lot. And he was, and Lisa and Sarah were amazing with Trump Press as well, but they were kind of really polite. They would say things like, maybe here on this page you could do something. And Mona was like, cut five lines from this paragraph. <laughs> you know, you're getting too repetitive. And that was really, it was really, he was the only person who was close enough to me to be ruthless enough to say, don't say, really think about this. And then there were other decisions that you have to make as a writer. Um, and this would apply to both of us uh, as well, that you have to decide on tone, you know, and you have to distract, like, in, it's, your, it's my life, so the plot is already set, but I also still had to decide on what the story would be. And one of the things that I found when I was writing about um, being a teenager, and I went through a lot of really hard stuff when I was a teenager, and it, because it was really hard, I'd spent my, a lot of time separating myself off from it. And I kind of turned, them, turned the, a lot of those experiences into funny anecdotes as a way of, as a defense mechanism against kind of protecting myself from the serious version of it. And when I wrote the essay about my teenage years called Something About Me, my partner read it and he said, the, the problem is it's too upbeat. You've written it as if it were still a kind of funny dinner party anecdote. Um, and you have to, if you're going to tell the story, you have to be brave enough to tell it seriously. And so really, I think the process of editing for me, because I'd never been through anything like that before, though I had written kind of a lot of academic work before, the process of editing for me is that reflective time where you get to think, is this what I want to say? And is this how I want to say it? And Ian, I guess the tone that Emily talked about there, it's something that really runs through Minor Monuments as well. Um, like it's a really ruminative kind of, I saw it described as kind of slow reading kind of book. It's like set, half set maybe on like the family homestead on, on the bog or near the bog in Offaly where your grandfather used to work. Um, was the tone there from the start or was that something that similarly um, tram press were really important in kind of bring to the fore? The tone was pretty much there. Um, I only have one tone. <laughs> That's just me. I can't, like, I'm not acting. Uh, I, don't have, I don't have a lot of style. Yeah. 
as a writer, you know what I mean? But I guess it feels kind of like a little bit different to other essay collections. It is like one that you kind of like almost relax into sort of thing. So like, I mean, how like how did you find the tone? Was it just like the location where you're writing or something? No, I mean, it was written all over the place. Um, many different places and situations. Um, it's difficult to answer. Like, it just, it, like it, something feels natural. You know what I mean? That's when, in, that's when it's working. It's like when you see it on the page and you're like, oh, I don't have to change anything. That, that kind of makes sense. Then that will come not just because of what's actually, like what, what you're saying, but how you're saying it as well. Like the two come together. I don't feel like there's any real clear separation in my mind between what I'm writing about and the way that I'm writing it. Like I, if, if I sense any sort of friction between those two things, I know I'm, I'm on the wrong path and something like it needs more work or that, that it's very difficult to say. Like, it's not like I was worried about sounding a certain way or trying to, you know, make it slow reading or make it relaxing or anything like that. It's purely trying to do my absolute best to write something that I would want to read and didn't always succeed with that. But also just that sense of form and content and style all just being one thing inseparable and and relatively frictionless and that that's what i'm trying to go for uh how have you found writing since have you written much since notes to self was published uh emily you're <laughs> laughing because i have a full-time job <laughs> and um which i re- sometimes remember to do no um i i uh I do. So I'm a, I, I'm an academic. I, I teach drama for a living um, in UCD. And promoting Notes to Self has been quite the journey. Um, I just used the J word. Um, the it, It's been really, really busy. I, I actually don't know how people write while it's so noisy. I think the one thing you really, really need to write is quiet. Um, to figure out what you think, to find the clarity, to allow it to develop so you can hear your voice. And uh, so the the big thing that I'm doing is is uh, I'm taking a sabbatical from my job um, from September, which I never thought I would get to do. And it has been the gift of Notes to Self, basically. Um, and, uh, and I'm taking a year off and try and find some quiet. And have you? D- uh, you have done uh, more writing since your pub. You have an essay in the new Stinging Fly, I think, don't you? <laughs> I do. Yeah. You did that ages ago. <laughs> <laughs> I did that. Well, I, d- I did. I did a bit of it ages ago, um, and then uh, it was it was dragged out of me at the end, um, in the middle of everything, kind of going on, very last minute finish on that one. Um, but yeah, I've written a couple of small bits, like just uh, just a couple of like short essays and stuff for different magazines and things um more as a continuation of stuff that's in minor monuments if you know what i mean rather than something completely different and i think it's going to take me quite a while probably to do anything different because like emily said there's just a lot of noise it's very hard to find any unbroken time or quiet time for yourself at the minute so uh and like emily i work (laughs) a lot uh and so it's yeah it's it's been difficult to knuckle down and and get into something but hopefully soon and i think as well sorry here i'm doing it again um i think as well there is this thing where you are then asked to have a response to a particular thing and and i get requests that i don't that i find really difficult to fulfill then because they say oh will you write an article about infertility 
and I'm like, okay, well, I already wrote that essay, but I'm expected to do it now in 800 words or less. Yeah. Um, and there is a real, I think, there is a real appetite for what's called the hot take and we all have to be you know coming up with these um instant responses that are bite-sized kind of versions uh of and i just prefer the longer form and so many essays are 1500 words that's their kind of capacity and actually you need to say to you need room to to breathe on it and to say what you want to say yeah, if i mean if the essays could have been done in 800 words you would have done them in 800 words. I'd be a journalist. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's a completely different job altogether. How has the response been outside of Ireland? Just because, I guess, I don't know, like, are they quintessentially Irish books? Ian, I'd probably say yours is maybe a little more, like, it's rural Ireland. Um, how has the reception been outside of Ireland? Um, good, I think. Uh, <laughs> I don't know, really. Uh, I'm not calling up Trump Press going, what's the reception like outside of Ireland? Um, yeah, people seem to like it. Um, hopefully it's not too parochial uh, in its concerns. So hopefully people, even if they don't have a clear picture of, you know, Bordnemona and, and West Offaly, uh, can probably relate to some of it. I mean, most people at this stage in there probably do have some understanding of what it's like to live with Alzheimer's. People do... There's plenty of other stuff in the book that's neither about bogs nor Alzheimer's, so if you're worried about that, um, there's other stuff in it too. Uh, so yeah, hopefully people have just got into it, where, no matter where they're from. Uh, and Emily, I, I don't quite understand the, the publishing world that well, but it's just like being bought by a new publisher or something from Tram Press, is that it, and gotten a UK release? Yeah, yeah, it's under Penguin now um, in this edition. And uh, and kind of amazingly, I never imagined that anything I wrote would be translated, but um, it is being translated into, it's out in Sweden now. Um, and, uh, and I just signed for a Korean deal. So I was like, <laughs> wow, it's coming out in Korea. Um, yay. And I was like, can I, can I add a little note at the end of the contract to say I would like to travel to Korea <laughs> as well, you know? Um, but the, uh, actually the, the kind of Irishness of it is odd. And, um, so it's, it came out last week in, uh, America and with, with, uh, Random House and, um, the, one of the depressing things is that what I just talked about, that the essay about the Eighth Amendment in Ireland, which is now out of date here, is coming back into relevance for the US. And so the thing that I thought would make, might make it hard for readers outside of Ireland to kind of connect to suddenly has this really strong resonance for American readers. And that is chilling actually uh on that note i suppose <laughs> <laughs> sorry we couldn't end on a, on a cheerier note maybe but Korea, uh, Korea. <laughs> uh thanks to uh ian and emily i think they'll both be reading from their collections or from something anyway uh later on in the crawford it's a night at the gallery that we're doing later it's kind of the final event of crosstown drift this year if anybody is going and wants to see them i still think that there might be some tickets on the door if you do want to go um thanks a lot to victor and all the guys at uh watergrass hill omani's it's a really amazing place delighted to uh get out here and we have to get back on the bus now we're going to go to uh, our next destination so thanks a lot for listening Thank you.